build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. Success. I know we've talked about it a lot on the diaries. Maybe not directly, but it's a part of a lot of these stories. What is it? Is it reaching the top of your profession? Is it buying a home? Is it being outside as much as possible? Maybe it's all those things. I know it's different for each of us. Things have been hectic here, in a good way. My hard work is paying off in ways I never imagined. Yet, even in this current chapter in my life, where every opportunity seems to be rolling out in front of me, there's a gnawing feeling that the greatest achievements aren't made in front of a computer. That true, raw feeling of delight is the strongest when I'm with friends in the mountains. It's standing on top of El Cap with Brad, each of us punch drunk and laughing from exhaustion after four days on the wall. It was Tooth Rock three years ago, sitting inside this little bivy cave hiding from the sun and laughing with James. And it was standing on the steepest flanks of Mount Shasta with Becca dropping into 7,000 feet of perfect spring corn, feeling the wind gather in my ears, each arcing turn growing bigger and bigger until the smallest wind drift sent the board into the air like the truest arrow. And it was this Saturday when the best snow of the year fell, and I stood atop a 300-foot spine, a finger of snow that I'd been thinking about riding for years. I dropped and I rolled over the small cliff, I'm on this finger, it's just wide enough to make turns, and on each side it drops away for about 30 feet, so screwing up a turn is not an option. But I see the path in front of me, I I photograph it in my mind, and then I make a turn and the snow billows up, and I'm shrouded in the most beautiful curtain of snowflakes. I'm completely blind, but I know where each turn needs to be, and I make them. I know exactly where I am, and then there's this incredible rush of gravity, My inner compass points me towards my exit air, and I point straight out into the runout, and it's done. And out of instinct, out of pure childlike instinct, I raise my arms to the sky, and I utter, barely audibly, yes. Maybe success in the flatlands is an entirely different animal. Maybe you just can't compare the two things. Yes, there are times in my endeavors in this tiny little office where I get the same thrill. I get, I feel proud of what I do. The words fall into place just right. There's the emails of generous support and belief, and they appear like godsends, and I'm grateful for them. It's getting easier to pay the bills. And for the first time, I know that there will be work next year. I remember these moments, too. I cherish them. Yes. But... Still, when I drift off to sleep, I hope for dreams of mountains and friends, not work. Compromise is part of life. 
We make sacrifices all the time to sustain the big picture. But how much can you give up in the name of career, money, and comfort before you stop being successful? Today, we present A Successful Life, a story from Amy Brown, whose endeavors as a writer brought her one of the greatest rewards you could hope for as a writer, a job with National Geographic. Then she collided with the very same struggle I'm going through, that maybe you're going through. It took 6,000 miles of driving for her to come up with an answer. I'm Fitzgahal, this is Amy Brown, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. I shoulder my commuter bike down two flights of stairs, unlock three deadbolts, and walk through an iron gate onto the street. It's 7.40 in the morning, high 70s, and 95% humidity. I start to sweat before I even start to pedal. Dripping, I arrive at the downtown M Street building at five minutes till eight. Crouching and digging through my bag on the side of the entryway, I pull off my t-shirt and ruby red bike shoes and pull on a light sweater and low heels. I hook my helmet to my shoulder strap as I walk through the doors and into a gallery showcasing award-winning photography from the last 50 years. The security guard gives me a funny little smile, and I realize he probably just saw me half-naked. First day, I say, smiling back. And his reply? His reply is golden. Welcome to the National Geographic Society. In the golden age of love's architecture. This was the dream job, the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I was going to be a writer for National Geographic. In my 30 years, I've been a lot of things. I've been a student, a goat farmer, a field scientist, a French pastry baker, an athlete, a coach, a partner, a friend, a printmaker, a talented ski tech, a decent cook, a hydrologist, and always, always a writer. The National Geographic job was a stamp of approval that verified it. It made it legit. I was a writer, and I was moving to Washington, D.C. I'm a child of the Pacific Northwest, a native Oregonian. When I was a year old, my dad put me in a chest pack and took me up the red chair at Mount Bachelor outside Bend. My parents tell me I cried almost constantly for the first nine months of my life, but I didn't cry then. They say I stared in silence the whole way up the lift, then smiled the whole way down. My mom, terrified and waiting at the bottom, says I laughed as she tried to clear the snow from where it clung to my cheeks and hung in my curls. When I turned nine, Santa showed up with a snowboard and bindings custom-made to fit my little kid's Sorel boot. In our house, we didn't go to church. We went outside. Playing in the mountains was what we did as a family. I grew up in snowy meadows and on big peaks. I found solace to teenage angst and the loneliness of watching my parents go through an ugly divorce in powder turns and endless laps on perfectly sculpted halfpipes. In high school, I only went to school half day so that I could be on the mountain the rest of the time. 
When I graduated with honors, I didn't go to the graduation ceremony because I'd already moved up to Mount Hood for the summer. My teachers were mortified. My parents shrugged. They knew. I burned out on snowboarding, but picked up teleskiing. I invested in avalanche training. I studied snowpacks. Spent more time on classic cross-country gear. I learned how to read a topo map. I took up fly fishing, favoring a small three-way and headwater streams. I began climbing, read up on knots and alpinism. I fell deeper and deeper into mountains. When National Geographic called, the fact that I'd be leaving the mountains, leaving powder turns, out-the-door trail runs, microbrews, cold, clean waters, and big open skies, well, I really didn't think about it that much. I packed my Subaru with four Rubbermaid containers and my laptop, put two bikes on the roof, threw in my cowboy boots as a last-minute addition, and started driving the 3,000 miles east toward the most powerful city in the free world. This was it. The next great thing. The career that screamed opportunity. When I rolled into Washington, D.C., a city that crams more than 9,000 people into each of its 61 square miles, in the dark, in a hammering summer thunderstorm, complete with torrential rain, my sense of direction failed me. I had no GPS, no map, and absolutely no idea where I was or how to get where I needed to be. The only thing I did know was that the city regularly led the nation in the number of violent crimes committed annually. I pulled over on a side street, thinking that maybe I had left the Google map of the city up when I closed my laptop that morning. I popped open the screen, and there they were, like a gift from St. Macintosh, four black wireless signal bars. I put the computer on the seat, got out, walked down to the corner, read the street signs, came back, plugged in my current location, plugged in my future location, and suddenly, despite still not really knowing where I was, I knew exactly where I was going. Three days later, I rode my bike through rush hour traffic to the front doors of my dream job. And I was totally stoked. For five days. Then I woke up. It was Saturday morning. I didn't have to go into the office. I was in D.C. A lot of people, when they heard I was moving to the Capitol, responded almost identically. There's so much to do, they said, but I wasn't sure. I found out that a girl I grew up with was in her third year of medical school at Georgetown. I called her up and we went for coffee and a walk around the block. We talked about the city and all the monuments, museums, openings, shops, all those things that people say there are to do. Then she smiled, her eyes welling with tears. I hate museums she said. I knew I was screwed. Life at the office was going well. I was working for the television arm of the organization as a researcher and writer on different film projects. I was part of a group of talented people who were truly working hard to promote the organization's mission of inspiring people to care about the planet. It was a great thing to be part of, even on days that found me debating with producers over whether or not showing 20 seconds of full frontal gorilla sex was a little too graphic for a G-rated film. Every night, though, I still had to go home. And every morning, I still woke up from dreams of mountains. The summer moved into fall, and out west, winter arrived with a vengeance. Lifts spun in early November. 
Resorts opened with epic base conditions, cold temperatures, and storms stacked up on the horizon. My inbox filled with messages from friends about early season runs. My phone wouldn't stop ringing with reports of face shots and slashers. It seemed everyone I knew was headed out to play. I started running three days a week on the treadmill in the basement gym at Geographic. I tried to keep myself sane. My office didn't have windows. My apartment didn't have plants. I joined a yoga studio and did sun salutations, but I no longer saw the sun. At night, I stared at the ceiling, unable to fall asleep. Fine became my pat response to the ever-present question of, how are you? To be fair, D.C. has within its limits a huge 1,700-plus acre forested park that the clerk at the running store warned me not to go into at night, or at dusk, or at dawn, or when I was alone. Later, my roommate said that dead bodies were regularly found in the park, and in response I asked her if the bodies were just dropped there, or if the people were murdered there. Because, you know, if they're just dropped there, then it probably isn't as dangerous as if they were killed there. You live surrounded by concrete long enough, and you can rationalize anything in the name of getting a little mud on your shoes. I tried hard to find the outside in D.C., to find nature and beauty, to find my church. I went running on the banks of the Potomac River. It smelled a bit like sewage, but so does the Willamette. I went to climbing gyms and tried to find common ground to fit in. Then, one day at a kayaking event, a guy I'd never talked to, never even seen before, sat down next to me, looked me in the eye, and said, you're not from here. It wasn't even a question. I smiled and shook my head and told him Oregon. We chatted for a bit, then ran out of things to say. We just kind of sat there, and it was blatantly obvious that I was not from here. One night, after walking home in the rain and the wind, with the sound of emergency sirens and car horns echoing in the background, my phone rang. It was a friend calling from the road on her way to Yosemite to spend a few weeks on El Capitan. A native New Yorker, she had left the East Coast almost a decade before and only been back for brief family visits. We caught up. I asked about climbing plans, winter trips, grant proposals, possible articles. She asked if I thought I'd stay in D.C., A few days before, my boss's boss, a senior vice president and heavy hitter, had sat me down and asked me about my long-term plans. I waffled. Moving out to D.C., I had planned on doing whatever it took to stay. Living in D.C., I regularly thought about what it would take to leave. He pressed a bit and then told me to go talk to Human Resources about a current opening. It's a great organization, he said as I stood. I stopped on my way out and leaned against his doorframe. His office looked out on a partial view of the city. Four blocks away was the National Mall. The White House was around the corner. It was a tough economy, and this was a real job at a great organization with high potential for all sorts of opportunity. It would be ridiculous not to pursue it. Around Thanksgiving, I helped put on a showing of the Mountain Film Festival. The first movie was a ski film. It opened with a beautiful white pillow line, a cliff band, a shot of some lucky skier out there just letting them run. 
I stood in the dark, watching and smiling. Then out of nowhere, I lost it. I leaned against the back wall, crossed my arms across my chest in a self-hug, and let the tears slip down my face. The film ended, and I pulled myself together. But then there was another, and another, each one a kick to the heart. And then a super short film, couldn't have been more than four minutes, called Home. The narrator's voice came across the speakers. Home is within. And I knew. Right before the holidays, I sat down with my boss. He leaned back in his chair, looked at my jeans still cuffed from the ride in, and told me that people who found their footing in the Pacific Northwest are elitist, that we are forever ruined for all other places. He said that nowhere else can satisfy us, that we have a surreal vision of what home is and what home means. I smiled. I hated the generality, but in my case, he was probably right. I said thank you and invited him to come visit. At 9 p.m. on the last Friday of my contract period, the night before I was planning to head west, it started to snow. Weather forecast called for one to two feet. On Saturday morning, I woke up and my car was buried to the windows. I took a deep breath and I waited. 24 hours after the start of the storm found me outside with a shovel and broom digging the car out. It was time. I was leaving in the morning. I had all-wheel drive and snow tires and it was just time to go. I left D.C. Sunday morning. I think I'm actually outside of the city finally. Um, it's about 9 a.m. Under gray skies that often spit snow and ice pellets that would ping off my windshield like nature's BBs, I pushed north and west on Interstate 90. I paused only to stay with my older brother and spend an afternoon in Bozeman, Montana. I had it figured out. I could drive about 900 miles a day and make it back to Oregon in a three and a half day push. I tried to keep moving, through Minnesota, then South Dakota, Wyoming, and into central Montana, but the weather bucked the schedule. I slept curled in the back of the car in Spearfish, South Dakota. The below freezing temperatures and cramped quarters had me up early, and that morning I had my only near-death driving experience of the trip. I slid through a stop sign in downtown Spearfish. Luckily, I was the only car on the road, and I didn't see another driver for almost two hours. A bit later, I was into Wyoming and opening my eyes to take in one mountain range after another. I just got the panoramic, panoramic and I've got 
the Tetons and the Crazies and the Bridger Range, and and I wasn't fine in D.C. Um, I think it's it's interesting, you know, you grow up in these landscapes and you take them for granted and you enjoy it and it becomes part of your life, and you don't really realize how how ingrained um, these how ingrained this to topography becomes and and I think it just hit me I came around the corner and, and it just totally hit me and it's got this amazing beautiful light and these amazing beautiful mountains and I did not make the wrong decision um, I don't I don't really care if if I have to struggle or you know work at a customer service gig or at a bakery or I will figure it out worth it to me to wake up in the morning and have joy about where I live and the possibilities that await me and, and it's, it's a good it's a good thing and a good decision and it's the right decision for me. The small 800-square-foot house sits on eight acres outside of Bend. It's not the house I grew up in, but it's the place I list on all those forms that ask for a permanent address. It's also where I head when I'm in between places, when I need a space to regroup, to breathe, and to plan. When I left D.C., it's where I set the compass arrow. All right, 2,930-some-odd miles, and... We're back in Bend, and uh, just got to the house, opening up the gate, walking around back. Can I go get the, the hidden key? Um, something we definitely don't do in D.C., but uh, it's pretty nice to be able to do that and just, you know, walk in. It's a, it's a good day. It was a long trip. Um, yeah, pretty excited to be back, and... And I'm going get, to get the key here and get into the house. I think there are a lot of us out there trying to achieve something, to reach a specific goal, to build a certain career, to attain some desired result. Maybe we're trying to impress someone, to make someone proud. Maybe we're trying to change the world or see our bank accounts hit a certain number. I know that a year ago, I saw living in D.C., working at the Geographic, as a huge accomplishment. Then I got there, and I was living it. I was walking down a path that I believed would lead to a successful life, yet I couldn't stop dreaming of being somewhere else. One year, and a 6,000-mile road trip later, I understand that success is malleable, and a successful life is what you make of it, what you define it to be. When I dream, I see pillow lines. I see peaks so tall and steep and beautiful that they must hide their faces in the clouds. And when I wake, I want to look out the window and see those dreams come true. Within me are mountains.
Amy Brown is currently living out of the back of her truck, making a go at riding while enjoying the finer things in life. Music today by Balmoria, The Slow Six, Besnard Lakes, and Jason Collette. You can download the cuts and find the links to the album at our site, dirtbagdiaries.com. You can also reach us with questions, comments, story suggestions by emailing dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. The show is brought to you by Patagonia. They've got a whole new set of spring videos up at the Tin Shed, so go check it out at patagonia.com, and I guarantee it will get you thinking about warmer days. Additional support also comes from Kuat Racks. I just got my bike all cleaned up for the spring. I put the NV rack on the back of the truck, and it started snowing again. A lot again. So it's going to have to wait a bit before it gets to go out and play, but in the meantime, check out kuatracks.com, or better yet, find the company on Facebook where they've been giving away free racks. That's right, I said free. And always a big thanks to New Belgium Brewing. I'm Fitzka Hall, that was Amy Brown, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.